0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. Now I don't have my uh, wonderful co-host Michelle here because she just, you know, had better things to do today. Um, So I do have our producer Jimmy here with me. Hi Jimmy.
1: Hi Steph, because I have nothing better to do obviously.
0: Yeah, Jimmy's got nothing better to do today and Jimmy was really, begged me to be on this podcast (laughs) because this is his favourite favorite genre that we're going to be talking about
1: exaggeration (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) so i'm here with a colleague of ours um associate professor Suming Tio, um who is um who teaches in the department of english and she is a our resident expert on all things romance and so we wanted to talk to you about your research on romance so welcome Suming. thank you stephanie and hi jimmy (laughs) So let's start by thinking about why you wanted to study romance academically.
2: Right. Okay, I sort of got into romance by um, accident because I did my PhD work on women's travel writing. Uh, of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And a lot of the women who went traveling went back. When they got home, they wrote uh, exotic romance novels <laughs> about um, the places that they'd been to. So um, in addition to reading their travel writings, I was reading uh, their romance novels. And, of course, one of the first ones I came across was uh, Edith Maud Hull, E.M. Hull's The Sheik. So I had read her travel, um, her travel uh, book, Camping in the Sahara, and when I read The Shaker, it was quite different. <laughs> and so I started getting very interested
0: in romance. The more um, about the scholarship I read, um, the more interested I got in it. I should have mentioned, too, that you were the author of Desert Passions, um, Orientalism and Romance. And also that you are writing, at the moment, a entry on romance for the Oxford um, Research encyclopedia of literature. Sorry, my brain is gone today. Um, so you're you're well immersed in the romance kind of genre. Um, so yes. what are you studying at the moment in in relation to romance?
2: Okay. Um, well. Uh... There's a couple of things that I'm doing, I suppose, uh, for the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Literature entry. I'm just basically introducing romance as, um, you know, romance scholarship, yeah, um, you know, and and the whole field that has developed since the 1980s or late 1970s, really. Uh, The scholarship has changed quite dramatically, quite considerably. So um, so that's that. I'm also starting work on another um, project. Uh, it's a monograph that I want to write about history in the romance novel. And this will look at historical romances, but it's going to look at how the past is represented in romance and um, how uh, problem histories particularly uh, crop up in romance. Um, so things that I'm looking at, for example, are medieval romances, regency romances, um, I'm very interested in um, African-American romances because I've, um, um, I was doing a bit of research on this and I found out that um, a lot of African-American women learn about their past and engage with their own history um, and a sense of heritage by reading romance novels. So these romances um, play a, a, a very important role in um, passing on historical knowledge as well as culture. I'm also interested in um, more problematic histories as in um, the Holocaust. So I've been working on the Holocaust for quite some time and um, there are indeed Holocaust romances, which seems to be... Bizarre, (laughs) yeah. ...complete oxymoron. I mean, why would you set... um, a, romance, a love story in the yeah. midst of a Holocaust, but there are quite a few. So, I, so you know, when I got over my initial, I have to admit, shock and a bit of a revulsion, I started to be really intrigued by these Holocaust romances because, you know, apart from the question of why would you do that, um, there was, you know, then I thought, well, what kinds of histories are being transmitted through the romance novel? Does the genre of romance actually distort the history of the holocaust um and then you know um, um, similarly is uh, how how is history impacted when you write it as a romance in the genre of the romance so i'm interested in i guess um in history and fiction in the form of um of the holocaust romance and um and, and another thing i'm interested in and that i've just been working on is about um Uh, the culture of romantic love in China Mm -hmm. Uh, Historically, that um, did not exist in the same way as we understand it in the West. And yet, there's uh, um, uh, quite a body of work on historical romances in China being produced since the 21st century. So it's really interesting to see how they map that onto historical and cultural conditions, which were completely different from the West, uh, where romance um, arose. Yeah, so that's basically, I guess, the book.
0: Um, There's so much to go go over there, but maybe a good place to start Uh is... Maybe you can define romance for us because I think that some people get a bit kind of confused about the difference between a romance novel and a love story. Okay.
2: Yes. Um. This is probably one of the hardest and most ambiguous terms to define, (laughs) because if you um if you do an internet search on romance um, novels, all kinds of really strange things come up. So um I mean obviously uh, it's ambiguous because uh, if you wanted to trace the roots of the the romance novel, you have to go back to the Middle Ages and and the rise of um you know uh, um I guess of of the French romances um, um. and um uh, you know but i think um for 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 my purposes um uh, i'm looking at romance as a genre in the way that the industry describes it so it's um so the industry describes it as a genre which is focused on a love story um uh, and it, which has a happy ending so it's just two very very basic requirements it has to have a love story it has to um center on um on the, the romantic protagonists um and it has to have a happy ending right so that's what the industry um and by the industry i mean um the publishers the readers the writers um and the booksellers that's what they um that's what they understand as a romance um in terms of a romance novel um and, and because that that fits reader expectations a love story on the other hand is quite different because um all kinds of works could be a love story but um you know you could have a happy ending or a sad ending it doesn't um it doesn't necessarily have to focus on um, on the love relationship so, um, in terms, of, I guess from the commercial point of view, it's quite different. Even though readers might mix them up and think, "Well, you know, mm-hmm. reading something like I'm, I'm reading Nicholas Sparks." There's, um, there's, uh, yeah. you know, love stories. I was story, thinking Nicholas so. <laughs> Sparks as you were talking. Yes, yeah. so it's a romance. But, but he himself is very adamant that he writes love stories and not romance. Is that because he's a boy? <laughs> Partly. But, I mean, <laughs> about, I think the, um, the the romance writers of America um, you know, um, have statistics that show. I think maybe about. About 10 to 15 percent of romance writers are male
0: yeah I saw that right. I remember uh, being not not shocked but mm-hmm. uh, thinking that that was a high proportion compared to yeah. what I kind of thought uh-huh. would be the case well, yeah. it's such a genre associated with women isn't it yeah well there
1: was that uh, wonderful film in the 90s um what's it called? as good as it gets with uh, oh. Jack Nicholson as a romance yes. writer you know quite a popular <laughs> romance writer and actually there was quite a few now I'm thinking about it uh, Misery was another one yeah. um uh, about a romance yeah. writer. Yeah. Paperback Back Hero as well, with like yeah. Jackman. Yeah, and, uh, and he tries to hide yes, the fact that he's a, right. he a romance writer. So yes. I, I think um, it is quite... Uh, it's yes. there, it's, yeah, it's and there, and there yeah. is a um, stigma, I guess, associated with, with romance that it should be more of a woman's genre and yeah. for men yes. it's a guilty pleasure. Yeah. And certainly I felt that it was a guilty pleasure <laughs> when I was reading it as a as a teenager uh-huh. uh, back then, and it was something that I used to hide, you know, Boys would hide playboys, and here I am hiding romance. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, so, always
0: been a bit special. I know it was very yeah. special. <laughs> but
1: that definition you made was quite interesting because I remember uh, in the midst of all my romance reading, I was trying to read as much as I possibly could at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard about Gone with the Wind, right. and I thought, oh well, you know, it's, it's sold as the greatest love story of all yes. time. And I thought, one well, must read this yes. romance novel. When I read it, and, and it ended, and I thought this isn't the formula that I like, you know, why, why would it end like this? This is horrible. I don't like this ending at all. So and it's a did, love story, not a romance. Yes, exactly. And yeah, I thought that was actually, um, that really defined the difference for me. Gone With Wind was a love story, well, yes. is a love story, I should uh-huh. say. Uh, I like it much better now, but uh, uh-huh. the first time I read it, I did have a reaction to it because it didn't follow that formula that you were talking about. Yes. And you know, it did focus on the love story, but it also didn't at the same time. I think the war played quite a big Yes. Uh, backdrop for it, uh, yes. whereas other stories I was used to reading did have that exact focus that you're talking about. It was, you know, the love story of the protagonist, and then it did always ended quite happily. Yeah, uh, and that. Probably explains my warped childhood because <laughs> Disney was another big influence on me. And again, love story, happy ending. Yeah. So, but, I
2: mean, you find it as far back as Shakespeare's comedies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's um, you know, that's the, that's the genesis of, of the modern romance. Um, so the comedies always end happily, no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Like it can be very tragic, but it ends happily, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and that's why I suppose Shakespeare also translates very, very well into um, romance yes. genre for those yes. who adapt Shakespeare.
2: Yeah, so the uh, the genre I think is quite elastic in that sense. People associate um, the genre with Mills and Boone and all the category romances, all <laughs> the bodice rippers, you know, um, with half-dressed <laughs> heroes and heroines and all of that. But if you just focus on the structure of the romance, um, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen's mm-hmm. novels are romance. Um, a Room with a View, um, E.M. Forces A Room with a View is a Romance. Um, as by its possession, you know, subtitled romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, so it does cross cross over into the literary, except I suppose. And if you think about, I mean, most 19th century novels do, um, uh, you know, work as romances. It's in the 20th century, I guess, with skyrocketing divorce rates, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know become disenCHANTed with a literary romance.
0: Well, I was, uh, I wanted to pick up on a point that Jimmy made about hiding romance novels uh-huh. because, um, I actually set my, my feminism class this year, I, I set them a task which was to go and read a romance novel uh-huh. and, and, talk about it in class. And a lot of them were very kind of, <gasps> I don't want to be seen in public reading this. Uh-huh. Why do we have this sneery attitude towards romance when it's so popular? I mean, in terms of sheer numbers, it, it really powers the, the publishing uh-huh. sector.
2: Yes. Well, partly because, um, it's um it's women's fiction, mm. you know you can't get around that fact because, like men read um similarly formulaic types of um uh, fiction you know westerns. Um, James novels, Patterson, um, <laughs> yes, um, uh, military <laughs> yeah. sagas and things like that. There's a there's a similar formula, but it's okay because it's manly, it's aggressive, mm-hmm. it um, deals with things in the public sphere, whereas things in the private sphere, you know, what goes on in personal lives, in families, um, relationships, all of that is denigrated and not mm-hmm. particularly valued. Mm-hmm. So it's the, uh, So again, we have this public-private split, um, you know, uh, male-female split. Um, what is economically pr- productive. And what is you know what sustains society, but is not uh, is not uh, monetarily rewarded, right?
0: And it's so stupid because men are involved in these things too. Men have domestic lives, men have marriages, men have romances, and yet we we so we so associate that so closely with women
2: but i also suppose like um, you know because of um, the success of Mills and Boone you know um, uh, and then Silhouette and now Harlequin Enterprises, which has taken over all category romances um, uh, they put out so much uh, so uh, so much romance so many volumes. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know i 've once read a statistic um, on the Harlequin website that if you um, put every Harlequin book um, end to end you could reach the moon and Back eleven times. Oh wow, that is
0: a lot of I books. thought you were going to say the Moon and Back. <laughs> full stop not yeah. 11 times <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff there yeah. and
2: there's a lot of junk there's a lot of writing which is not particularly good so it also becomes denigrated because um it is associated with um with poor writing and um and also i think you know like really from a scholarly point of view intriguing things happen with the genre in terms of how readers read it so that over time those who are reading category romances so the categories are like um the se- the, the ones which come out as a series like um every month or so like with eloquence mm-hmm. and um, if you read the early um, to mid 20th century ones they're a lot more like the realist novel the Victorian novel you read the ones by the end of the 20th, 20th century and the 21st century and they're a lot more stylized and if you come you come into the genre for the first time and you read this um you know um, this um, a 200 page um, novel a lot of it might not make sense and why uh, and that and, and that is the case because they're skipping a lot of things that re- readers are filling in mm-hmm. um, it's the the plot in the category have become a lot more stylized because um, because writers sometimes depend on readers to do the work of filling it in.
0: Mm. You know, so so it's interesting in that regard. Um, I've done a bit of reading on romance scholarship, okay. and I'm interested in the difference between old school romance and new school um, romance. Okay. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yes.
2: Old school is actually from the 70s, um, and that's and that's related to the first wave of romance, um, f- uh, feminist romance scholarship. So it was in the 70s. It actually began, I think, pretty much with Jermaine Greer and the female unit just absolutely excoriating romance <laughs> uh, for um, for what it did in terms of enslaving women to patriarchy and making them happy with their lot. but. But um, after that, all, um, all the feminist scholarship that comes out in the late '70s and early uh, and, and 1980s is pretty much from the feminist point of view, worrying that women are being indoctrinated by romances, and um, and then you know pulling up a few um, category romances, a few Mills and Boons or Harlequins to show how um, you know how detrimental mm. these role models were to women's lives. And um, the types of romances that they looked at were really from the 70s and 80s. Um, so it was very ahistorical because what happens in the 70s and 80s is that you have, um, you know, the romance becoming a bit more sexualized, a, a, a greater focus on sexual tension, but an inability to describe sexuality and, um, you know, and erotic encounters um, in a more natural way. So, uh, so what romance writers did was to heighten you know, the battle of the sexes, you had, you know, um, um, uber alpha, alpha males <laughs> who are very, very unpleasant, um, and, um, you know, helpless, passive feminine, um, uh, heroines, um, and, and that becomes old school romance, the helpless heroine and, uh, you know, the very masculine, um, hero. It's really interesting because it, uh, because if you read from the early twentieth century um you don't find the same kinds of um romantic protagonists mm. because masculinity and femininity changes over time mm. so you know but that's really what um i guess um what readers um and the industry refers to as old school romance um new school romance, the heroine you know uh, um, this is post feminism uh she's independent, she works. Um, It's really about the heroine more than the hero because you can still have old school heroes who are then transformed by the new school heroine. Um but the the heroine has autonomy um and she's complete in herself. I think that's probably the biggest difference. She doesn't need a man to complete her. she doesn't need marriage or domesticity to complete her. That's you know like um that's the cherry on a fabulously iced you know yeah. wonderfully rich cake already, so she's got a very um you know satisfying life, and the man is just a bonus it, He's not the be all and end all
0: in the way he might have been in an
2: old school romance.
0: One of the kind of sticking points with old school romance is that often features. Sexual violence, yes. and often the heroine fall, will fall in love subsequently with her rapist. Yes, and that's been, for obvious reasons, a huge point of controversy. How do yes. you, how do you read that kind of um, interest in in rape in uh-huh. the old school romance? Um, well,
2: uh, it's very problematic. Yeah, um, I mean, first <laughs> of all. Um, you know, I guess readers would say there is a difference between fantasy and reality and for all the feminist scholars who are sort of mm. worrying about, you know, women becoming habituated to, uh, you know, um, to rape and to, uh, to domestic violence, you know, readers, uh, they didn't talk to readers at that time, but readers were very clear that, you know, um, there is a difference. We do understand that there is a difference between fantasy and reality. So that's one thing, um, you know, and fantasies of sexual violence um, are... Well, you know they go back a long way um in uh, in our culture you find them all in um uh in um eighteenth uh, you know nineteenth yeah. uh, century pornography as you well mm-hmm. know right mm yeah, um, but the other thing I suppose is that um, that uh, uh, that sexual violence and the use of rape, you know, as a as a technique of seduction, um, is again very historically specific to the '70s and '80s. Which is not to say that it doesn't occur in novels which are published in the 21st century, as authors try and go back and see whether they can redeem that. Um, I don't find that it is redeemable, but some yeah. readers do enjoy reading it, you know, and um, you know. But it's very specific to that period of time, and it's. Um, again to do with what I referred to before as um, the sexualization of the romance novel. So when they're moving away from, you know, chaste um, uh, uh, romances and and what they now call uh, in the industry sweet romances and they're trying (laughs) to become a bit more sexualized, but they don't know how to write about sex uh, in a way that would be acceptable to readers. Um, And um, they're not experimenting hugely because because of commercial considerations. So um, with with series romances, with all the big romances it's always about um, I think about i guess markets consideration is the most important thing, so for Mills and Boone, for example, when editorial decisions were made in were made in London um they have to consider not just what um australian readers might put up with but what south african readers might put up with what south uh, you know like southern american baptist readers might put up mm. with so um you know so it, it, it took a long time um i guess for romance uh, uh, writers particularly those writing category romances to, um, to experiment with sexuality. But what they could do, um, to keep the heroine innocent, old school, um, and to introduce sex was to have her raped. right so it's a terrible plot device but that's what happens with the flame and the flower Um, Kathleen Woodwiss's you know first bodice ripper of 1972 where the heroine um, you know is raped several times by the the completely repugnant hero and you know and then then she comes to um, to love him but most importantly you know in the process of loving he becomes domesticated and Jodie McAllister calls um, this you know love as sexually transmitted disease, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's what the, it's what the hero catches. So, um, especially in the historical romances of the 70s by people like Batrice um, uh, Small or um, Rosemary Rogers when they were trying to write a lot more spicy um, erotic romances but didn't quite know how to, rape featured as an element because it sort of kept the old school heroine innocent and pure um, and yet it, introdu- it introduced sexuality and, and sexual activity into the into the novel um have to say that you know by the by the late 70s early 80s readers were you know really protesting against this mm. right so the industry started to change because of that writers started to change because readers were just saying look, you know enough of that already and so you you get the introduction of the i guess um you know like the uh, um the new school hero who is very american very boyish very charming mm. sort of like the boy next door from the 80s
0: onwards um we've we've talked about this before, and I remember you saying to me something that I thought was really interesting, which is that old school romances, even when they use this these these rapes as as a kind of plot device i suppose um At least the heroine doesn't die.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, I mean, you know, Jennifer Kruse, who is um, a a romance writer I like very much because she's very funny. um, She has said that, you know, one of the things that she loves when she uh, when she first started reading romance, because she was a literature major and she said everybody died you know mm. tests right? Clarissa, you know, tests the, the, Clarissa, Clarissa yeah. exactly so all of these yeah. heroines virtuous heroines die when they have sex right and she said you know God you know to read a, 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 a story for the first time where a woman gets to have sex and doesn't die you know? yeah <laughs> she yeah. ends the novel alive it's a victory that's right yeah so um, you know so so that was one of the appeals of um, of uh, E.M. Hull's The Shake mm. that the heroine who was this cold tomboy you know and who's raped by the Sheikh until she falls in love with him you know um despite all of that she doesn't die and she Mm -hmm. goes on to live a happy fulfilled life right and um and that is that i think that was one of the appeals and why readers will overlook um Mm -hmm. the rape scenes um, as well but i also think i mean i have a theory that in the 70s um you know when um because in my historical research i did a lot of stuff on history of rape right and rape politics um american uh, feminist politics was absolutely saturated by anti- rape politics you had susan Brown Miller's against our will every man is a potential rapist and all mm. of that and um you know uh, and there was so much anti- rape politics and so much um, fear of men that um they did a study on u s campuses in the early 80s and showed that you know American college women were far more afraid of being raped than they were of being murdered mm. right so there was this big fear and in some ways i wonder whether these um, these stories aren't not a response to the rape politics of the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, not that they're saying that rape doesn't matter, but that, um, you know, it's not the end of the world, because in a lot of, I guess, in a lot of the novels, um, the, the the stories, the rape stories are distasteful, but not only does the heroine live, um, she actually triumphs and overcomes. She's not permanently scarred forever, you know, yeah. and reduced to this shriveling, whimpering husk of, <laughs> of a woman, but she goes on, she transforms the hero, she transforms her world as well, you know, because it's like, okay, Um, that happened it was really bad but I move on with my life and I wonder whether some of that um, kind of thinking you know um, a a refusal to keep women as victims is not um, entering into some of the politics of these novels as well
0: That's interesting because that's quite a kind of feminist message isn't it that you know that, that it recovery is possible it's not going to destroy you it's not going to yes. it's not it's the thing third that defines way, you it's
2: more, third wave, uh, more yeah. third wave feminist message than a second wave one
0: yeah that's right yeah. well you talked about how the the kind of second wave feminists were very down on romance yes. and how that's shifted i was wondering uh-huh. if you could talk about that shift in the way romance is perceived in the academy because uh-huh. it's not something that would have been studied kind of um academically until say the, the you know 70s 80s yes. 90s yes yeah
2: yeah. So, well, I mean, QD Leavis wrote about it, right? mm. <laughs> you know, dismissing all of those Savvy, secretaries yes. and all yeah. that who read romances and shop girls, right? Always like the shop girl. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, uh, I guess um, feminist scholars, as I said, were um, were worried about women. I think they actually didn't really know many women readers, mm. you know. So they had this idea, um, and uh, and everything. Then I guess um, in terms of reader response, was it was just about images right you had Mm. to provide images of of good images you know and role models for women to follow it was in many ways although they didn't recognize it at at the time an infantilizing of women right Mm. Um, they're like kids you have to give them good role models and um, and romance uh, heroes heroines relationships were not so a lot of the feminist scholarship that came out was about that it was also um, um i guess it was also part of this whole you know um, um, this whole Marxist school of um, of hegemony, right? Mm. So if all of these women are reading um, uh, books, romances that reconcile themselves, uh, the re- reconcile them to patriarchy, to husbands, to um, domesticity and family life, where's the revolution? Yeah, going they to won't come rise from, up. Right? They'll be they'll be <laughs> <Yeah>. placated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, and and of course, you know, when um, romance um, writers finally wrote a response to the feminist criticism. So, it, um, you know, romance writers got together and um, and um, and um, published a book called *Dangerous Men, Adventurous Women*, and it was um, l- looking at what they thought that they were doing um, in terms of romance writing and their readers. Uh, they were saying, you know, it is romance; it's not a feminist manifesto. There is a difference. <laughs> right. um, but it it was also interesting because um, the readers understood something about uh, sorry, the writers understood something about the readers that the feminist critics did not, and that was that readers was much a much much more complex um, process yeah. than what the critics thought so laura Kinsale, for example who was a romance um, writer said that you know when readers read they don't um, you know they don't just identify with the heroine and then um, it matters whether she's a good role model or not they identify with the hero as well and use the heroine as a place marker sort of like a monopoly iron or a monopoly shoe right mm-hmm. to um, to chart their way through the romance right? Mm-hmm. Um, so she's the placeholder through the narrative and they're playing this game and in the end I guess I always like to um, to say that well for, to people who say that romance is formulaic it is formulaic in the way that chess is formulaic there are all of these rules um, you know there are certain things that you can and can't do and um, the ending in chess is always checkmate and in a romance novel it's always happily ever after mm-hmm. and I think um, writers understood that um, a, a lot more than the critics so that was, I guess, the first wave of, of feminist criticism. Um, then there was sort of a lull in the 90s, um, which was when I started writing about um, romance novels, because I was interested particularly in um, Said's Orientalism, and how there was this um, spate of Orientalist historical novels, um, romance novels from the 70s onwards, and then there was a revival of um, orientalist uh, romances from the, the 90s and in fact it peaked after September 11 oh, wow. right, the September 11 attacks and it's still going really strong today so I, was, so I, um, so I came into um, studying romance novels because I was interested in the phenomenon of orientalism mm. Um, and, you know, when I had a look at it, uh, there were a lot of other things that were um, interesting about the genre, not just feminism and whether mm. it's, uh, you know, they are good mo- models or not. And there was Orientalism, there, were, there was the legacy of British imperialism, American um, neo-imperialism, how, you know, this is translated into, into the books and all of that. So um you know and then by the end of um I guess by the 21st century i found uh, I guess I connected with a lot of other scholars who are doing work in um in much more interesting areas I guess um mm. and also different kinds of um, um I guess subgenres genres of romance so that the, so that feminism is still important but it's um I guess it's much much more complex now and um the difference is that critics are reading romances in um you know in a formalist way rather than just a simplistic media way that uh, where you, you just focus on good or bad images?
0: Well, I mean, all of these arguments about women being susceptible to the images they read in romance, mm-hmm. it's exactly the same in the 18th century. You know, women are going to read novels and have their head turned and, and not going to be satisfied with, with ordinary life because, you know, the uh-huh. novel makes it sound much more sexy than it is. Yes. Um... So it, these are just old arguments that are yes. now being applied to to romance, and they, what's un, what's underpinning all these arguments is the idea that women read in this really simplistic way, mm-hmm. where they'll just read a novel and go, "Okay, life should be like that. Men should be like that," and and don't have a kind of critical function or a uh-huh. or a um capacity to yes. to read in a much more complex way. So it's yes. really quite a reductive argument. Yes, um, I was wondering too if you could talk about um more about the the rise of orientalist romance and then the plateau and then the rise again what do you put that down to
2: okay um well i mean it first comes about at the uh, in the early 20th century so i mentioned um uh, e.m hulse the Sheikh, but orientalist romance has preceded hulse the Sheikh. Um, mm. um, um, and um, for that first wave i guess um it's really um to do with british imperialism mm. Right. And that's why the women travelers, um, that I had studied and went back and wrote, uh, romances about the, about the Middle Eastern desert and Orientalist princes and, um, and all of that kind of stuff, except that they never crossed the racial bar, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, um, as, as so, um, and even Hull doesn't do that because her Arab sheikh turns out to be, um, an English Earl in disguise, right? Oh, much safer, Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, but, um, th- you know, it was that period when Britain and France were expanding into the Middle East, right? As the Ottoman Empire um, and its influence over that region um, was declining, that's when we have the first um, wave of interest in um, you know romance love stories set in um, set in the Orient. Um, the Orient me- meaning, I guess, from North Africa, the Middle East uh, to um, I guess to about uh, the Indian subcontinent. That's a lot know, of yeah. the world, yeah. Yes, yeah, um, and um, you. Know, know it's sort of there were so many um, orientalist romances desert romances being produced in the um, in the 20s particularly I think there's just a glut of them a surfeit of them Mm. and then um, uh, and and then people lost interest in them Um, but and I think particularly by the end of the 20s um, Britain is facing all kinds of insurgencies anti-colonial insurgencies in the Middle East it's a pretty nasty situation it's just not romantic anymore (laughs) <laughs> right, um, And so there's this lull, um, you know, there's not really um, anything much produced until um, the end of the 60s when a romance novelist, a British romance novel is called Violet Winspear decides to try and um, revive um, the romance uh, the Orientalist romance novel. So she she does a revised version of E.M. Hull's The Shake.
0: Right. Is um, he is he actually from the Middle East this time, or is he still English? Um, no, he's still English. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> they don't
2: actually become fully um Arab or fu- fully Muslim or fully you know like um non English, non European. They've got French background lots of the time or <laughs> Spanish, right? So French and Spanish backgrounds are really popular. Um, that's in the seventies. It's not until the eighties really uh-huh, that uh, right. you know, and it's really I think more in American ones, okay. um, where um y- you know where you have um I guess um, in American terms, Caucasian. Asian and, um, and Arab right mm. uh, romances, yeah.
0: And so you said that it sort of peaked after 9-11. What do you think yeah. was going on there? Look, I, th- I think you know throughout
2: the eighties there was a few um, a few sheikh romances produced. Um, Australian novelists started to uh, dabble in it. Um, Lynn Wilding was the first um, in nineteen ninety or ninety one. She wrote a book called The Sheikh um, with an Australian protagonist. Um, Emma Darcy, who was a husband and wife team. Um, Frank and Wendy Brennan um, until he died and then Wendy Brennan kept um, writing alone as Emma Darcy but Emma Darcy um, uh, has produced quite a few shake romances Um, there's only a handful of American ones and then um, and they only appear in the 90s and I think it's after the first Persian Gulf War you know, after Saddam Hussein, um, uh, uh, you know, and Iraq invades Kuwait, and so after Desert Storm, I think for the first time, American media was saturated with the images of all of these, you know, um, all of these um, sheikhs and Muslims. But the difference from previous, I guess, representations was they were seeing, you know, so-called good, Arabs for the first time in the form of Kuwaiti princes and all of that mm. and it was all pretty glamorous so this kind of stuff had been happening in Britain um, you know, prior, uh, prior to that but um, uh, the interest is really after um, Desert Storm and then after 9-11 I thought that it would peak because who wants to read <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah
2: know, about these politically in the age charged of, thing, yeah of, um of terrorism but interestingly um there's more and more produced and then one thing i realized was happening you know by the time i was um doing um, you know writing the um, the final chapters for my book desert passions orientalism and romance novels um when i looked at um the at the books which came out since 9 eleven i realized that these were actually xenophilic anti uh, you know attempts at anti-racist uh, mm-hmm. Agendas right so the romance novel uh, novelists ha- um, i mean the books are still orientalist definitely, yeah. but what they 're trying to do is to use the romance novel as a medium for showing um, human relationships. Right, um, and and for humanizing um, rather than demonizing um, the the figure of the the Arab or the Muslim, Mm. so it's very interesting in that in in that respect, Um, and for undermining um, uh, dominant mainstream media stereotypes of um, Muslims as terrorists or dangerous or whatever. Um, There's an American author, Suzanne Brockman, who you know, I think on her website she deliberately stated that she's doing this kind of thing, writing multicultural romances to try and normalize, humanize, integrate. you know, Arab um, american Muslim Americans, into the mainstream.
0: It seems like that's happening a lot from from what um, I've been reading about romance taking on these kind of dominant scripts about race, about um, even about gender, and yes. and and really using the romance novel as a way to confront a lot of these kind of quite controversial or, or talk, discussed aspects of, of of kind of the way we think about this culture and society. Yes, um, and you know, I think there's. Uh, um,
2: there 's always been a minority of romance writers who um, wanted to engage with um, i guess the big political questions of their mm-hmm. time, so I know like during the civil rights movement um, uh, there were a number of romance novelists with Mills and Boone who um, were well established and they you know they tried to write. Um, like African white mm. romances. Um, uh, they tried to push an anti-racist agenda, a civil rights agenda. But um, their, their works, those particular works never sought to print. Um, and, um, you know, we've got a few histories of Mills and Boone which show that the, uh, the the editor, Alan Boone, just shut them down because he was thinking about the Southern American market yeah. right, and also the South African market, which were important markets to him. And in the end, he said that, you know, um, uh, Mills and Boone like their characters to be uncolored. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. So you know, so so it's not that the writers couldn't, it's whether they were able to um, you know, to get their works into print. Mm. Right. And this is in the end a commercial business for them. Um Once uh, the Americans um I guess uh, entered American publishers entered into the um, the romance market and set up you know rival publishing companies and publishing outlets for romance writers um from the 80s onwards um, the possibilities of what you can publish um, expand. And a lot of it, so a lot of it is due to publisher politics, publisher decisions based on um, on market decisions. Because um, you know, at the same time that Mills and Boone was shutting down um, interracial romances, um, Collins in Australia um, published a few romances where you know there was Australian characters with Japanese love interests. Um, they were secondary romances, but it was there, mm-hmm. and they were able to do it uh, because they were quite a small publisher, so they could take more risks and so if we skip forward um to the present moment right in the 21st century um digital publishing e um ebooks has absolutely exploded the market and made it possible for you know um for people to um to publish all kinds of romances, um, niche romances, the subgenres just keep proliferating. Yeah. and also to make their political statements if they want to, right? Now they might not sell that many, but, um, th- but uh, they generate a lot of discussion. So I was at a, a conference um, at Williams College, Massachusetts, um, in um, in April, and um, there was uh, one a very um, famous historic American historical romance writer and um i think she was quite exasperated at another american historical romance writer called courtney milan who has just come out with a new series of asian american books where she is um challenging not just straight um overt racism but aversive racism it's um, a lot of racial politics it's very very clever right um uh in uh, um in this book it's called trade me and um and and anyway, so this this uh more traditional American historical romance writer was saying, um you know that's it she's tanked as a romance novelist people are not interested because they don't want to be confronted with um with with (laughs) racial politics and all of that in a romance novel it's supposed to be escapist um look at her sales numbers you know um they have pancakes right so for um for this more traditional romance writer it was all about sales Mm -hmm. but um but courtney milan still sells you know, she might not sell as much, but um, but because she self-publishes and she's got a massive following as well and a huge presence on social media. And, um, you know, uh, and so she's using, uh, I guess, her profile to um, to promote her kind of politics and to explore, um, uh, explore the different political agendas.
0: It seems to me that romance readers and writers are very technologically savvy and very experimental in the ways they um, engage yes. with, with the for the writers with the reading public and for the for the readers with the, the formats in which they're, yes. you know, likely to engage with novels. I remember reading that um, those um, novel subscription services like um, Scribd and Oyster in America yes. were actually tanked because romance readers read too much. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it kind of broke their model of, yes. of how they were going to, you know, engage uh-huh. with the marketplace because they're such kind of voracious readers and they'll, yes. they'll do things like hop on the e-book, e-book you know, train before everybody else will and so they're they're quite um they're quite savvy yes they are definitely i think
2: they were um, some of the uh, earliest adopters of technology but even more than that marketing practices so the whole idea of you know um of reducing a novel right to a brand and a package right um uh, uh, which is what mills and boone did and um and ensuring uh you know like um a, a regular um, I guess uh, uh, um, subscription base right um, uh, that uh, that was really novel you know it was so creative in terms of publishing history mm-hmm. uh, and then in terms of e-book publishing romance um, you know romance writers were among the first to take up this d- digital technology partly because of the stigma of people reading romances
1: easy yes. it's <laughs> it's to pretend incredible. you're not reading a romance yeah. it's I was, was going to say you know, I wish <laughs> I had it as a teenager I would have just you know uh, give out even more romance <laughs> <episodes>. <laughs> um, yeah the anonymity would have helped really greatly, and I think you know one of the other things that I kind of want to get your opinion uh-huh. a little bit on too is one of the most embarrassing things for me about reading a romance novel uh-huh. was actually the cover. Yeah. You know, the, these covers were just awful uh-huh. <laughs> because uh-huh. they had usually Fabio. I don't know why it's always Fabio, but you know yes. he made a lot of money. On he them. did. I you understand. know it, it was always him yes. uh, in different outfits, different style, and then a woman sort of draped over his yes. body, like that. He's standing tall and right uh-huh. uh, and it was just so obscene to a you know 14-year-old. Uh-huh. Child who just wants to get to the really interesting uh-huh. love story aspects of it, <laughs> yeah. uh, and they were always like that. So I always avoided those sort of books. Um, yes. I always avoided Mills and Boons uh-huh. because of the reputation of Mills and Boons. Yeah, you know, women's fiction. So you shouldn't be reading that. And I always gravitated then towards the novels that were romance uh-huh. but didn't seem obviously romance i mean they seem girlish yes. in the sense that they'll have um abstract pictures of flowers or, <laughs> you know, yes. pretty colors or something to that effect yes. um so i always went for those of romance because they were safer you know uh-huh. i could always disguise them as you know, something of more academic value or you know, yeah. romance uh, and i devoured those uh-huh. ones uh but interestingly enough when I d- was brave enough to start buying the other ones uh-huh. i realized that my reading habits um were more f- sophisticated as a result of reading the non-generic ones, so, mm. so, so the ones that weren't marketed right. towards obvious romance uh-huh. uh, reads. So, Such I was, as? Um, well, I was reading works by um, Lavelle Spencer, Judith oh, McNaught, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Sandra Brown. So, a yes. lot of uh, writers who tend to move between genres as well. Yeah. So they didn't like to stick to just the, the one genre. Yeah, yeah, the crime yeah. thriller ones, and you know, maybe that's when my first crime fiction interest began. Uh, and also writers who uh, put a lot of research into creating these complex worlds. So one of yes. you know, one of my favourite writers was uh, Judith Knott. Uh-huh. And what I loved about her was that uh, she took me to the Victorian period, or mm-hmm. she took me to the medieval period. Yes. And she told me about the customs and uh-huh. you know, the, um, the discourse of that particular period. And that's yes. what I was learning yes. through that. And so then when I read Meals and Boons, and it was just very you know, formulaic. Um, yes. it, it, once you've read one, it seems like you've basically read... All the others, um, to some extent, yes. whereas with her, there was some sort of formulaic thing involved, but it was just all the things that were filling in, you know, all the things that she was padding it with. That was much yes. more interesting than that formula. Yes. Uh, and for me, that was the fascinating thing about reading romance. I was learning new things all uh-huh. the time, and even now, when I try to find the origins of why I know some certain trivia's, uh-huh. I can probably trace it back <laughs> to a romance novel that I read yes. somewhere along the lines. Like, yes. oh, yes, like you know, someone asked me, well, how do you know about you know dukes and earls and you know where they rank and all that? Uh-huh. And so it went, like, I don't really want to admit this but it was because i read a lot of historical <laughs> romance fiction <laughs> uh-huh. and they told me very clearly duke was pretty much at the top of the ladder and then, uh-huh. you know it wasn't from academic research uh-huh. or anything like that there was actually Red through, yeah, it was through <laughs> these particular um novels. so uh, do you see the covers in a way as having any um impact on the content
2: uh yes and no i mean uh, like what you're describing is the difference which i didn't make clear earlier between category romances and single title romances so the category category ones are the mills and boons or harlequins the ones you're interested in um which are mainly the ones that i read as well uh the single titles. Mm -hmm. so um you know as long as they have they loosely have you know like um Meeting, conflict, relationship, happy ending—you mm. um, know, so uh, anything, <laughs> anything goes. Right. So those are the really interesting ones because you can do all kinds of, in- um, you know, uh, wonderful things with them. Uh, you can explore new worlds. It's, um, it's what you make of it. So the single titles, I um, completely agree, are much, much more interesting to read. Um, I probably, if I have to read romances, it will probably be, be the thriller, horror, you know, <laughs> slash crime. <laughs> There's nothing, um, uh, you know, quite like getting me in the mood for romance as a good murder. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, but there were some really yeah. strange ones, too. I remember I read uh, a picture of a collection of supernatural romance ones. Yes, and paranormal. I was never quite the same after that. Because I thought, oh, that just went into a territory. I'm not quite sure how I feel <laughs> about that.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, um, the you know, the J.R. Ward um, Dark Lover series, the Black Brother mm. um, Daggerhood, that is so incredibly popular, not just about uh, among women, but really popular among young men. Because they're all about these really, really violent, like hip-hop-loving uh, vampires, right? Yeah, so...
1: Yeah, um yeah, with vampires and ghosts, and, werewolves, you know, werewolves, and you know, yes, A yes. part of me just sort of went. I, I don't know if I feel comfortable yeah. you know, going to this particular territory, but it yes. has, as you said, expanded yes. much more, and, and it's probably mm-hmm. become the more dominant, you know, especially with the rise of something like Twilight. Yes, uh, that's which, right. Which essentially is playing off that particular genre. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, um, yeah. So I agree. Um, you know, but in terms of the cover, I think the cover definitely is um, is very semiotic It definitely signals what kind of romance you're going to get. So, you know, um I mean it's very carefully arranged. Um the bodice rippers of the seventies and eighties, all the Fabio covers, you know, I mean it, um they it did wonders for Fabio's career. He wouldn't have <laughs> he wouldn't have his American like talk host, you know, thing <laughs> and all of that if it hadn't been for the fame that he gained uh, well, We all know his name. Covers. We all know who exactly. he is. Yeah. And, you know, he's such a star at romance writers, uh, you know, of America uh, conferences in the in the <laughs> Has 80s he still got long hair. 90s. Of course he's still got long hair. I have no idea. I haven't seen yeah, him probably recently, but um <laughs> Yeah. But, um, I mean, if you think about the novelty of those covers back mm. then too, when you had, um, you know, quite bland, you mm. know, covers of the 70s, right? Washed out colours and all of that. And suddenly you have, um like, the, especially the first bodice Rippers, you've got these covers that pop, mm. you know? They are erotic, they're racy, they're not like anything that you've ever seen before. And then the gold leaf as well, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I thought they were hideous then. I'm, have, I, I'm very nostalgic about them now yeah. because yeah. they don't really have those kinds no. of covers now. No. They have very tame, pretty covers yeah. now. It,
1: you it know, seems to be And embossed now. too. It's yes. almost like five years jumping out at you. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. His pecs, you know, yes. sticking out at you. Now, now there just seems that... to be
0: girls in dresses. That's right. <laughs> yeah. In houses, you know, mansions.
2: Um, yeah. So, you know, those told women back then during the, um, the romance revolution, when romance novels became sexualized, that this, if you want to read about sex, this is, uh, you know, the book to pick up, right? So it was an obvious marketing tool. Mm. Yeah, um, the Sandra Brown ones I think are interesting because she has always styled herself more as, I guess, like a sort of crime thriller with, um, you Mm. know, a a, a genre with romance thrown in. So they've got very more abstract covers, I guess, you Mm. know. um, uh, Karen Roberts is another one as well, but with the black Dagger brotherhood um the j r. Ward um series and the paranormals, you can tell that they are paranormals because they're they're so dark it's like uh, you know like you've got these blacks and grays and reds right so the covers definitely signal um the, the subgenre and um, and the the content and also I guess the level of sexuality in some ways
1: mm. yeah I mean yeah. those, those bonus script that you described whenever I did pick up on, uh, it was basically what you said almost every single one of them had a rape scene. Of some sort. Um, Mm. It could have been a coincidence, but every single Uh one that I've read of those, there was always a rape scene. I thought, why why do they always get raped in these ones, Mm -hmm. and not in these other ones that I I read?
2: But I mean, in some ways, it's also you reading it as a rape scene, right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean it was interesting because my my first encounter with a rape scene in a romance novel was through uh, a work by Judith McNaught, Uh and that was quite an interesting portrayal because it was focalised through the female character, Mm -hmm. and so it was actually her... um, she wasn't enjoying it, um, yes. and the male character was actually quite uh, repulsed by the entire action, uh-huh. and he felt quite a bit of shame by it. Yeah. So my first introduction to that sort of um, depiction was one of negativity, you know, this, uh-huh. this was not a positive thing to see. Yeah. So from that moment onwards, I, I sort of read everything uh, of a rape nature with, as being quite a negative thing, so uh-huh. it was quite a, a clever device that uh, yeah. but not uses yeah. to describe you know what rape could have been like. I mean, of yeah. course she does... Uh, convert him and you know, turns him to this lovely yes. gentleman at the end um, but it was a negative scene and so when I read it in other novels where it wasn't depicted so much as a negative scene I didn't quite know what to do with that uh-huh, because I just sort did. of went well uh, I think I should see this as a negative but she seems to be enjoying it so I don't mm-hmm. know what I'm like what exactly am I doing here yeah. and what am I doing with this scene so I didn't respond well to those novels mainly because of the way I was introduced to that's yes future, that's
2: really interesting because um your experience is probably not uncommon you know because mm-hmm. like the, because those um those covers do um appear on uh, the, uh, the historical novels of the seventies um you know uh, where there are rapes so I never thought about it before, but you're probably right a lot of covers that i guess no, um the readers who come uh, into the genre. In the '80s, just you know, they might just take the covers as erotic, mm. right, and really sexy. But if you had been introduced to um, to them uh, on uh, uh, the in the you know through the novels with the rape scenes, it might seem a lot more sinister. I hadn't mm. actually thought yeah. about and that. Yeah, and it's probably
1: that gap feeling that you were talking about. Yes. You know? So if you've been reading those type, you would have read it well oh, This is just another trope that yes. you have to go through in order to get to yes. the part that you want to to, to read. Um, but if you hadn't been introduced to that trope, then you you 're quite disconcerted
2: because the, I guess the novelists themselves also shift in terms of what they 're doing um uh, uh, in the sexual plots right I mean joanna Lindsay who's one of the most long lived yes know, I uh, right, romance yeah. novel historical romance novel um so her first novel captive Bride, which is again a um a rehash of the plot of the Sheikh Ian e. house the Sheikh uh, so that has a rape scene in it as well, mm. you know but um yeah, but subsequent ones do not. She's got boyish characters, uh, heroes, and all of that as well. So, so it, it changes over time. But I think also reader reception changes over time. So, um, you know, um, and one of the things I guess that um that the internet has done is to give researchers fantastic access to readers' thoughts about these books, you know, through Amazon reviews, through their own, you know, fan sites and all of that kind of stuff. And I remember reading Amazon reviews of um, Lindsay's first um, novel, Captive Bride, you know, and all of these people were saying, this hero really should be locked up um, behind a supermax, (laughs) you know. (laughs) He is
0: psychotic. He's, he's a sexual menace. You know <laughs> yes. what I love? I love the Smart Pictures Trashy Books website. Oh um, yes, yes, And Sarah's, yeah, they, they do uh, these. Yeah, Sarah Wendell. Yeah, the, they do such beautiful reviews of romance yes. novels, and also the covers. Yes. And I love those. Those see those. Um. Take of the covers where they point out that you know if you were in this position you would have like severe back trauma. <laughs> uh-huh. <Yes. laughs> yeah. So I like that that mixture of like tongue in cheek kind of irreverence towards the the genre, but also a love for the genre as well yes. that that that, that site encapsulates.
2: Yes, I think you know like, I think Candy Town is not involved in it anymore, but like Sarah and Wendell and Candy Town when they first started that um, it was such um, a creative and really you know um, original website, and one of the things they did. I think, which was, um, which has really revolutionised romance scholarship, is that they gave a voice to readers, mm. you know, and the reader got the chance to be the critic on um, smart the Smart Bitches uh, Trashy You Know Novels website. Mm. Yeah, um, so I love the reviews. I mean, some of the readers are, you know, more witty, more rude, and um, uh, more completely insulting than you could ever be yeah. as an
0: academic. <laughs> All the things you wish you could say. (laughs) Um, We've only got a few minutes left, Uh but before we go, I thought I would ask, do you have any recommendations, um, particularly interesting romance writers that are writing at the moment? Okay.
2: Um, I think Jennifer Cruzey is always good for love. Uh, She's like, you know, she's your basic Friday night rom-com, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I particularly like the work of Courtney Milan, whom I mentioned earlier, because when she decided to leave um, Harlequin and um, to self-published, uh you know um it took her in uh, off in all kinds of directions, and she's another one. I learned so much about um um eighteenth century British law because she had explored the archives at newgate jail yeah. right um so uh, her books are incredibly well researched they're not all about the aristocracy uh, you know she um also features um you know um i guess uh, uh, like, I think she's got a prostitute in one of them or something like that so um as, uh, and then, as I said, her more contemporary ones um trade me uh that has is dealing with um Asian Americans mm-hmm. you know um yeah uh, so I think she's really interesting Courtney Milan um uh, another novelist that I'm really enjoying um, at the moment is Jeannie Lin. so she writes historical novels about the Tang Dynasty um, oh, in very very complex um, ways um, I learned a lot about the Tang Dynasty I had to google a lot of the stuff to work <laughs> out what was <laughs> truly historical and what was not but she had done you could see that she'd done her research Yeah. Um, uh, so those are two novelists and you know I guess three novelists Jenny Cruzy as well who's a perennial favourite yeah that I enjoy reading
0: quite a bit. Jimmy, are there any ones that you are reading at the moment? Oh, Look,
1: I haven't read anything since the, since the '90s, uh, basically. But I am interested in that um, chain dynasty one uh-huh, you talked about. yeah, you know, uh-huh. I, I wouldn't mind reading those. Yeah. But uh, look, my, my old favourite is the one that I mentioned, Judith uh-huh. I Just I absolutely love her work, and mm-hmm. I don't know why it is, but I can read through them very very quickly, and usually do read through uh-huh. them very quickly. So it's romance, I, it's the
0: plotiness of it. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's it's the it's the binge reading, mm-hmm. you know dream really because you can just get through them so quickly and, and that's very why that liberation yeah. you were talking about romance yeah. uh, readers are voracious yes. readers um, and they mm. just really get through because it's such an easy read uh, and you're also learning things like um, mm. in a fun way yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know it's not a dry way like, yes. this happened and this happened this happened you're given a context and a narrative to actually you know, get into so, so that would yeah. be my recommendation and probably Sandra Brown would have a I do spot like for Sandra her.
2: Brown you know, mm, yes. I love
1: that Blending of um, crime and romance. Uh There's something exciting about it, you know. So maybe you know, there is something sexy about murder. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: I've never read any crime
2: (laughs) romance. Now I I think I'm going to have to. Yeah, but I guess, and um, you know, um, it's not just in the genre itself, you know. Persuasion is still one of my favourite romance novels, right? Mm. Jane Austen's Persuasion.
0: It's the most romantic of Jane Austen's novels, I think. It's it that mm. long declaration where he completely admits
2: that he was totally in the wrong <laughs> It's that letter. It's that yes. letter. It's,
0: it's that
1: every is. woman's dream, isn't it? Oh,
0: <laughs> <God>. <laughs> a letter like that. Yes. like that you were right <laughs> <You're> <laughs> you guys. were right everything you ever said was right and I love and adore you so much it's yeah. like, that's like okay I'll marry you now <laughs> of course yes. yes and of course you know as
2: by its possession you know every time I leave it for a few years and I go back and I think oh that was such a well crafted book
0: yeah. mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to put in a plug for my favourite Georgette Heyer mm-hmm. uh, okay. my one and only true love <laughs> uh-huh. um, which, Who which is? One? Oh god they're so all so good but I think um Arabella is a favourite. Uh-huh. Um, the Grand Sophie, although that has a really offensive part that I try uh-huh. to ignore. Um, <laughs> Venetia, actually, probably is okay. my favourite. Okay, Um And yeah. I do love Regency Bark and okay. that kind of series yeah, as I like well. You like all the alpha males. I like all the alpha <laughs> males, yeah. yeah it's disturbing. Oh, my favourite of hers is Cotillion. Oh, I do love Cotillion. Freddy. I love Freddy. Cotillion. <laughs>
2: I mean, Freddie is such an idiot, you know.
1: <laughs> but, but he's so adorable. He's, I mean, yes, he
2: is. And... Um, and uh, and she made uh, you know like an antihero into a hero it's yeah. Kinda, yeah yeah
0: I absolutely, I, I do like I do like the the mark II heroes as well, yes. but uh, yeah, for some reason her alpha heroes really work for me <laughs> it's <is> quite disturbing <laughs> actually and a modern um romance novelist uh-huh. that I'm really enjoying at the moment is Sarah McLean. All oh, right. Okay. Um, her books are kind of—I um, ju- I think they're a bit ahistoric uh-huh. um, in her representation of the Regency. In it, in that her characters seem very modern, uh-huh. although they live in 1825. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that she's she's obviously working off higher there. Uh-huh. Um, but I really enjoy her scandals, um, sc- scandals and scoundrels series, oh, where okay. she obviously takes some kind of idea uh-huh. from the contemporary world yeah. and translates it into a kind of nineteenth early nineteenth century context yeah. so there was one in which um the 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 plot hinges on a naked painting right um and its capacity to destroy the life of the woman who was uh-huh. being painted and uh-huh. it's obviously about um it's not really about naked paintings it's obviously really about like Naked photos being distributed online and right. the impact that they have uh-huh. on kind of on girls these I days, and so she really she she draws some interesting parallels, and I just really like her writing. So. Okay, I haven't read her, but I must. Yes. Sarah McLean, yes, that is okay. my recommendation. Now we have completely run out of time. Thank you, Sieming, that was so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, Steph and Jimmy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pleasure.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy, for co- copping to a love of romance novels. Very brave of <laughs> you. <review. laughs>
1: brave, what
2: can I say? It's an alpha
0: hero thing to do. Yeah, it,
2: it, is. Is, very,
1: it is very alpha it of is you. Very
0: alpha. Yes. <laughs> um, So thank you everyone. This has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. Um, if you could rate and review the podcast um, on iTunes, that would be really helpful. Um, please send through any feedback and suggestions for future episodes as well. And we will see you in two weeks. We miss you Michelle. <laughs>